This is the FutureX podcast. In each episode, we interview a platform designer, author, or publisher. They'll talk about how to build online communities that are diverse, welcoming, and safe. Now, here's your host, Lee Schneider. In today's episode, you'll meet Bernice Chow, an award-winning creative director, author, and public speaker. She is a co-founder of Asians in Advertising, a community with 5,000 global members that strives to create opportunities for Asians in the advertising world and helps elevate Asians to higher leadership positions. Bernice is an adjunct marketing professor at LMU and the curator of TEDx Culver City. In 2022, she was inducted into the American Advertising Federation Hall of Achievement, and in 2023, she was named Working Mother of the Year by an organization called She Runs It. Bernice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Lee. So you're one of the few uh, female Asian-American creative leaders in the United States. So what are you doing to bring change and Asian representation into the advertising world? Well, it's definitely pretty striking that it's not a more diverse community. So I, for background here, context, I live in Los Angeles. It's a pretty diverse city. And going into the field of advertising, I just never really thought that I would be in the minority. And that's not even as just an Asian person, it's also as a female. And so going into this career path, I was like, it's fine. My ideas will get through. It doesn't matter if I don't look like the rest of the room. It only matters on my merit. And I started to realize there are some challenges there when you're so far out of the norm. Uh, so in a room, it's, they're typically white males. I'm also a little spit small. I'm a little five foot with a little bit extra. So I'm just physically a lot smaller. And so I started to see that there was a lot of disconnect with things I would say and then how they were received. I remember hearing feedback like, oh, that's a cute idea. And I was like, there's nothing cute about my idea. Or I would say an idea and they'll be like, "Uh uh-huh. And then I would hear the next person repeat my idea and they'll be like, oh my gosh, that's fantastic. And so I started realizing there was a lot more to the way I looked, how I was showing up in these rooms that really did make a difference. And with something like creative, it is very subjective, the work that I do, whether it's successful or good or it goes through, or even the assignments that are handed out. There's high profile work where it has millions of dollars, and then there's low budget work that's a couple thousand dollars. And typically, if you get on a higher budget, there's more visibility, more media behind it, a bigger push whether that's even a celebrity or a high-profile placement like a Super Bowl. And so making sure that you do get seen in those rooms is highly important. So I would say three years ago, when the pandemic rolled around and we were all stuck home and worked from on Zoom and saw everyone virtually, I started doing a lot of introspective thinking about, hey, has the fact that I never had a female to work under, I've actually only worked for one, And she wasn't exactly a mentor type of person. And I've never worked for a woman of color. And I was like, had that, did that affect my career at all? Would I have made different decisions? Would I have activated myself differently had that been true? And so I was like, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna go on LinkedIn. I'm just gonna Google and find on LinkedIn and find some of these women out there, these creative female leaders, and just talk to them. And I realized how few there were. But I was so grateful that I reached out to about seven, five reached back. And I actually had a great one-on-one 
conversation with them over Zoom and I was just asking them about their career and how they were able to get to where they were being who they were. And I took away so much from that that I really was like, oh, everybody needs to be doing this. This is so absolutely rewarding. And so when the pandemic rolled around, they started also showing more Asian American speakers on panels. And I was like, yes, I'm going to go to every single one of them. And it really struck me after one incredible C-suite panel that these amazing individuals were saying they had no space to gather, that they never did this. And so out of all my virtual coffees with new people, I actually met this woman named Jessalyn Lam, who is a DEI and learning and development leader. And she also talked about the same situation she had in her career, also within advertising, but totally different vertical. And I was like, hey, I had this idea to create a community five years ago. I have a domain name. I have an idea for what it's going to be. Do you want to just be my co-founder? And this is through email, mind you. I only met this woman for 30 minutes on a Zoom chat. She lived in New York. <laughs> I lived in Los Angeles. So granted, I could I was a total stranger. And she was like, sure, just let me know what I need to do. And so I created a website on a Saturday on Squarespace. She looked it over on Sunday. We released it Monday. And we talked that we talked about success for this first event, this networking, shooting you out to different Zoom rooms. The success metric would be 20 people. Hmm. And we had 650 people sign up. And so we were like, oh, this is a good idea. This is something that people really want and care about. And so now we're two years out and we have 5,000 and people call in from globally. And so we're really excited that this community was built and there's a rallying point for the Asians within the advertising industry to come together. So what's amazing to me, first of all, you had realistic expectations and then reality exceeded those expectations. You really touched a nerve somehow, or there was something whose time had come. Why do you think it was then and why did it catch so quickly? I think there was just an understanding that there was something that needed to be talked about that never did. So culturally, I was taught to not share vulnerabilities, to not show the porcelain cracking, right? To always hold yourself with the, we don't talk about the bad things. We only talk about the good things. So if there is something that's happening into in the workplace, it's being unfair, you're not getting promoted, you're getting overlooked, your, your peers are getting out promoting you, um, all these things, you kind of hold it in because we're not taught to share those moments. So I think with the light of kind of, the pandemic, the anti-Asian rhetoric, the Asian hate crime soaring by 340%. Like there was these moments of everyone kind of being scared and going, oh my gosh, I never dealt with the realities of who I am and what I look like and how that could affect what's happening in the world. And I think all these things kind of stirred this idea of like, where is my community? Why aren't I a part of something? So initial success, great numbers, but there must have been some obstacles because it's hard to sustain these movements and hard to kind of keep it going. So what are your thoughts on that? The obstacles, keeping it going, and what are you doing about them? Well, it's definitely a labor of love. It is mm -hmm. a nonprofit. We do not pay ourselves and we put everything back in. So one of the things that we really faced is how do you keep this going? Uh, my co-founder and I, we both have young children. We have full-time jobs. And so it was really about creating a great community to help us. So we have an amazing volunteer team. The year one, it was about seven of us. Year two, there's about 30 of us. And instead of 
me trying to figure out things that I don't know as well and trying to do those things, I'm finding subject matter experts to really take over certain verticals so that we can activate very wisely and intentionally for that impact and scale. And I wanted to bring up something which I'm reading your book. It's great. We'll talk about it in a minute. And one thing that I kind of knew, but it brought home for me is the idea of this monolithic concept that white people often have of Asian Americans, that it's kind of one group or something like that. But it's actually many groups and a a lot of interconnection. Do you find in building your group that that makes it easier or does that make it more challenging, the the diversity among Asian-Americans? First, thank you for reading my book. Um, really appreciate that. I do think there has been so long this culture of not being together from not from the Asian side, not from the outside. So that when we started forming this group, I had a couple of people reach out to me and they go, can I go to your group? I'm South Asian. Uh, mm. Am I welcomed here? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. And there's this idea of like, yes, I think culturally we are so different and really talking about those differences that make us really wonderful. But also what are kind of the shared experiences that we can find strength in numbers as well? Mm -hmm. And when we're looking at the job market and the just what things are like in the creative director ad world, is there representation among Asian Americans at all strata uh, or is it super small all across the board? Is there any place, any areas that are strong, if any? So in the creative tract, it is very impressive at, I would say, entry level. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like when you have a strong portfolio, you may have came from a good school or you've kind of just built up your own kind of college examples. Mm-hmm. So I do think definitely in the entry levels, but as you go higher and higher, and I think this is across all careers, not even just creatives, it gets marginally smaller and smaller. And something about Asian American women, especially they call it the double paint ceiling because you get not only the female tax, you also get the ethnic tax on that. Mm -hmm. And so it is kind of a universal understanding that there is this ceiling across all fields. Something really amazing about our organization, yes, it has the word advertising in its name. When we look at the data, we're actually not all advertising. We get a lot of people who attend our groups that are in completely different fields, whether that's education, healthcare, finance, and they just find value of the things that we talk about, which is really how to elevate you for that career advancement, for that visibility for you to be seen. Let's talk about visibility, representation, and how they're intertwined. You know, as a white person, I can say, well, I'm represented because I can look around and see somebody who looks like me or see a billboard or see a TV show. And since I'm, it's everywhere, it's something that probably hasn't really crossed my mind that much until someone brings it up from a different culture. So, Why is representation important even? I mean, I know that's kind of a dumb question probably to you, but to to me, it was something I had to think about. Why is this important? Because it's something I've taken for granted as a white person. No, absolutely. I'm happy to talk to that. I mean, I didn't realize how limited I felt in my belief of what I could achieve because I never saw certain things. And so I say this when, you know, 
Jeremy Lin went for the NBA. Mm-hmm. And that moment of insanity was out there. You saw everyone's eyes were like, we just, we didn't even know that it couldn't be a possibility until we saw someone actually try to do it. And we're like, oh my gosh, this is the first, right? This is the only, oh my gosh, look how hard that person had to go through to make it. Um, I watched 38 at the Garden and I was like, I've already seen the previous Linsanity movie. I don't know if I need to see this one. And I watched it and it touched me on a different level because you don't realize how unrepresented you are or how unseen you are until someone really talks about it or they really have that moment of like, that's how bad it was. Because you kind of culturally were taught to kind of put all those things under the carpet of not, Mm. and going through this exercise of resilience. And so even when Andrew Yang ran and how much pushback that he got, I was like, oh, we are still a long ways off from that possibility. And I didn't really know that until I saw it, which is interesting. And so for me, visibility has been really interesting because I don't think I really processed those limitations because I've never seen it. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean exactly? I'm looking for other words here to understand. Does it mean that you don't see yourself in the C-suite? When we're talking about visibility, what does it mean in practice? Yes. I remember I saw this interview with Lisa Ling and she talked about who she saw when she grew up and she was like I didn't see many examples of representation but who I did see she saw Connie Chung Uh and it kind of goes oh you know you kind of model subconsciously who you can be by who you see out there that's doing it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and even I'm sure you know that paved a way for someone like her to come up as well because someone else kind of pushed through or broke through so I believe that, you know, it does help. It is hard to be the first trailblazer, but having that example or that push or that support to have that moment to be like, oh, perhaps that could be me um, or I could be the first. The title of your Amazon bestseller, The Visibility Mindset, How Asian American Leaders Create Opportunities and Push Past Barriers, which is what we've been talking about. So how specifically would you define a visibility mindset? What is it and why do we need it? That's a great question. Uh, So what we describe as a visibility mindset is to really look at how you're interacting with the world. So how you're speaking, how you're showing meanings, how you're connecting with others, how you're finding support, your mentors, and how you're kind of leaving that future legacy behind. All those places you can say, okay, how can visibility play a part here? And so if you have that as a front of mind when you enter the room, give a presentation, however, you can kind of start developing a way for yourself to show up to not be forgotten in the room. So really challenging that notion of invisibility more so than anything for a conscious visibility mindset. So a way to show up in the room. My ear caught that phrase. Could you dig into that a little bit? What does that mean? So I give the example in the book of how in advertising, brainstorm rooms are very popular, especially when we were in full-time five days a week. You would find yourself in these large conference rooms that are kind of intimidating and someone just 
brings in a proposition or a question or a brief that you have to then activate on in that moment. And that real-time feedback is super important for conversation. I am an introvert. On top of that, I was not told to speak unless I had something super smart or perfect to say because I will get dinged. I would get dinged so hard or be found out for who I really am and there's the consequences of that. So in my mind, I would love to digest the brief, go back to my desk, do some hard thinking, find great <laughs> research data, write it up in right. a very nice deck and bring that back. My comfort zone is not to give real-time feedback or to be just jumping in there, especially if there's not room or space. So if people are in the room and they're more aggressive with the space in that room, I don't feel like the need to be like, stop, I have something to say, right? Because right? that takes a whole right. nother effort. Also, I found that the pre-warm-up to these rooms were also sometimes a little bit awkward. So I was grown up first generation, my parents came here and then I was born. And so my parents didn't grow up with glam rock. I didn't grow up with watching sports. So when that pre-warm-up conversation becomes something I have no understanding of, and I'm not going to be like, hey, can you not talk about Metallica right now? I really don't understand this conversation. <laughs> I'm sitting in the room going, yeah, that's wonderful. Uh-huh, yes. And so then mm -hmm. on top of that, I'm forced to then join into a conversation where I'm like, I'm not prepared. I don't have fully formulated thoughts to jump in here. How do I jump in here? You always have this rapport that you're going. And so there's a lot of uncomfortableness there, especially when I'm taught culturally not to do that. And so on top of my whole introverted personality, there's a lot of things stacking here against me. And so I'm saying, hey, that visibility is so incredibly important. You have to get in there. Yeah. It's this whole, the soft skills idea, which you talk about also in the book, that we people get advanced, people get promoted by what are known, and you do a great job of it, talking about it in the book, as soft skills, you know, knowing Metallica, having cultural touch points, being able to, quote unquote, make conversation, but Absolutely. know about things that your boss or whatever, you know, the people who are the alphas in the room know about. What are we supposed to, you know, what do people do about that if they are really either come from another culture or they're just sure. not interested? Well, an easy way is to find an ally before you get into that room that you're going to go mm -hmm. in the room with. And you could be like, hey, I noticed Lee had a great point that we talked about before we got into this room. I'm going to share that at that moment. Or I can yeah. share a trend. I could just bounce off someone else that's in the room or just have questions that can be prepared, that can be used in all rooms. How are we measuring success by? Mm -hmm. What, what? Mm -hmm. When, you know, you could talk about deadlines. You could talk about things that don't have to be the answer to the brainstorm yet. You can bring in other things that don't have to be that exact thing yet if you don't feel like you're properly ready to digest that. But just make sure that your voice is known, your presence is known, that you don't come back and you're the note taker or you, worse yet, don't get invited back at all. Yeah, this, the tendency of the alpha white male in the room is just to start talking to say, well, you know, this isn't uh, I'm just talking off the top of my head, but blah, 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 and kind of suck up the oxygen in the room, whereas others may not take that approach. I'm not arguing and neither are you for people just talking, yes. but we are arguing for people to make a little noise and step out in front, even if it's not perfect. 
Exactly. And I do feel like this virtual world where we're on screen does democratize things. My screen is as big as yours. And so, or the other (laughs) six, three alpha males in the room, we take up the same amount of space. I also have the hands raised emoji now where I can be like, I have a (laughs) comment. So I don't have to just jump in there abruptly. Um, I also get a chat window now. So I could just share my ideas in the chat window. So there's other ways that I think you can really show up in these rooms that have been really fortunate that has been helpful by these virtual conversations now. Who needs to hear this message the most? And this is a top-down or bottom-up kind of conversation. Like We could say, well, the people who need to do the speaking up need to do the speaking up, or we need to say the people running the room or running the company need to be sure that voices are included. Now, both are valid. What do you think is most likely? And what do you think is the most valuable? I honestly get this question a lot, and I would love to activate the ones that really need the visibility first. Mm -hmm. We definitely need our allies. We need our cheerleaders. We need those people to help. But I would love to give hope to those people in those rooms that go, why aren't I seen? What am I doing wrong? Why do I feel so hopeless in my career? I really want to reach those people first and give them their voice. Mm -hmm. And how can we do that? So, I mean, I try to be a mentor as much as possible. I have people reach out to me. I get virtual coffees. I have conversations like that. Share the book, share the information, come to our events. But yes, if we can just be activists for those people in the room that we see feel a little bit awkward, feel a little unseen. Or if you're running the room, how can you make inclusive conversations in the room? Do you see that you're alienating half the table? Um, Can you make it a be like, what are you listening to? What are you watching? Maybe it's a conversation that's more open-ended. How can you create spaces that feel safe and warm for the people that are coming and attending? Yeah, that's something that I've seen among uh, people whose leadership styles I admire They'll be in a meeting or even a virtual meeting, and they'll they won't start right on topic. They'll say, "How are you doing today? What were you working on before you came to this meeting?" Or you know, and it's not small talk. It's not just like, "How was your weekend?" They really want to know, and it's a bridge building exercise, which I think is super valuable for people who may not be as encouraged to speak up in a meeting. Absolutely. I think all those things really help to warm up the people that may not be comfortable right off the bat um, so that they feel like they have a place and that they do Mm -hmm. belong in the room. Now, you're also a TEDx curator, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment. Uh, Why become a TEDx curator? What's the value of giving a talk like that? And what does a curator do? You can pick any one of those questions. I guess okay. that's too many questions, uh, but go with the one you want. Um, maybe I'll go a little bit further back about how I even ended up as a curator. So sure. in 2014, I had a wonderful woman. She reached out to me and she said, hey, I saw that you're creative in your day job. Would you mind helping me curate uh, for TEDx Culver City? And I was like, I love TED Talks. I listen to TED Talks all the time. I'm always inspired by them. Absolutely, I would love to help. And at this point, it was making social assets. It was helping with the website. Uh, anything that needed to have a design. Hmm. Uh, I think it had, you know, I had to th- talk about the theme as well. But just kind of like overall, like creative artistic direction. And then after this event, she was like, hey, I have a license for another event would you mind organizing it? 
I said, okay, I've never organized a vet before, but sure, I'll give it a try. Uh, and so I did a pretty decent job at it. And she was like, well, why don't you just do the rest of them? I'll transfer my license to you. And so that was 2014. And so now I have hosted nine events and I'm actually hosting my 10th one June 8th. And so it's been a really interesting experience, a TEDx organizer uh, or lead organizer in that fact. Uh, it's my job to get approval from TED Maine to be able to provide a local chapter experience. So my chapter is TEDx Culver City. Okay, so that gives us an idea of what you do as a curator. Uh, how are you finding people and how are you opening up the field so we have representation at TEDx Culver City? So I have a couple of different ways. Word of mouth is one way. I also have mm -hmm. a forum field on my website. I also get just a bunch of cold emails as well. It is a very arduous process to meet people, to talk through. A lot of times their talks aren't written yet. There's more of a theme or an idea kind of first before you kind of get into it. And so there's been a couple of times where as I'm going down the process with a speaker, I realize where they're going to with their talk is not really a TED talk. Um, so when I say that is TED stands for technology, entertainment, design, and their tagline is ideas worth spreading. It's not, here's the biopic on myself and why it is awesome. <laughs> which I get a lot of. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people want to tell me about their career journey, and that's not really what a TED Talk is. It's really about introducing a new idea into the world to make a difference. And so it is really hard when you have to tell a speaker they can't be a speaker, especially when it's volunteer. It's, it's all you know a labor of love on the side that we do this. And then it's also just making, you know, sure that the show goes and happens and everything is in, all put together. So there is a lot of work behind them. And so making those speaker selections are incredibly important for just the, for the audience in the show to really, audience in, to really enjoy what's being said. And I try to make sure that I have diverse backgrounds, diverse topics to really give everyone something that they're learning from. And what a great form of representation, because when I think of TEDx, it combines writing, speaking, of course, ideas, and physically being there, physically standing in front of an audience. So when you talk about visualizing and seeing and experiencing a person, this is a great way to do it. Absolutely. So you've done outreach for your book and for TEDx events. And some of that has to be online. We talked about online events being a way where you might be able to put up your hand raise and you get more visibility. But how do you get people to find you, enhance your discoverability of, say, your book or a TEDx event or something else you're working on? So in the field of advertising, I do that. I do that all the time for brands. I'm trying to get brands noticed so that you buy the latest car, food, you know, everything. And so that's the same thing with people. And there's a lot of times where I talk to someone who's looking for a new job and I'm like, well, how's your LinkedIn? How's your website? What is your online presence? Have you updated everything lately? And there's usually a hesitancy. Hmm. 
because it's like, it's okay for Apple to have a website. Do I need a website? And I'm like, well, if you don't have a website, how do they know who you are? How do they know that you're not coming in with a fake resume or fake credentials? Even though the website can still be fake because you're creating it, but it gives you some validity. And also I always give the metaphor, you know, how do you know what's a good product, right? If you're going down the shelves of a shopping aisle, you want to get the product that has the most reviews or the most use or, you know, the biggest hype. And that's the same with people. And so if you're going into an interview, if you make it to that point and they're probably Googling you. They're probably looking you up on Instagram, LinkedIn, all the social medias. And if you're not there, or if you're there and maybe not the presence you want to give is on there, that can hinder you. Or someone else is telling you what they should think of you, right? What if someone's saying something about you that's not true? Mm -hmm. So being able to curate your own presence, is absolutely crucial for your own career development or whatever you're looking to do. You know, if you're looking to be a speaker, for instance, you should have a speaker website. If you're looking to sell a product, then you need to show that you have this product. Uh, it's all about really cultivating what your value is. And curating your own presence. This is so yes. valuable. We're going to, in the show notes to this, we'll list your website. And Bernice has, you go look on her website. It's very clear. You get a lot of information. There's a lot of good stuff. And you can, you've curated your presence and you get to have the conversation there, kind of the first part of the conversation, which I think some people, when you're talking about representation, this is something that gets left out. Like it's your first impression. You're, yes. you got to get that conversation going somehow. And just like you said, people are going to check you out. They're going to do it like everyone does it now on some online something or other. So you may as well curate as best you can. Yes. And we talk about the soft skills. It's kind of part of that, mm. right? It's mm -hmm. your reputation mm -hmm. that's there. And so as much as I could say, I have all the hard skills out there, you're going to go and visit and see all my Instagram, my LinkedIn, my website, and you're gonna be like, Oh, this is what I glean from that. She looks like she's, you know, maybe easy to talk to, but you kind of get a bit of that personality through those channels. Yeah, it's so true. It is that soft skills reflection. I appreciate you bringing that up because it, we often forget that, you know, we may have all the smarts in the world, but if we're not fun, it sounds silly in a way, but if we're not fun to work with and we're not that articulate, it's going to be pretty hard to get yeah. hired or advanced. It's so true. Absolutely. You want to be a culture fit. I was reading a statistic that culture fit is more important. I think it was like right. culture fit was like 60%. It was pretty high. So if someone were starting up an online community, Let's say we're talking to someone who's listening to this and they have an idea. What's your best piece of advice for them to get that going and to connect it to people? Do it. First of all, don't just sit on it. Uh, it's really easy. Squarespace is super accessible uh, for people who aren't website coders. Just try it out. Uh, I don't think I would have made it a nonprofit organization or kind of grown it to the level it did if I didn't just try it out and just see where the community was. Uh, I saw this really great article over the weekend and it was a woman in London and she started the London Lonely Girls Club so she could make friends. And I don't wanna butcher how much the numbers were, but I remember seeing how many people she started grabbing toward her club and I was like astounded by the numbers for that. Um, and she didn't think it was anything. She just wanted to meet more people. So I would say, do it, try it out. 
iterate. Iterate. I was about, that was going to be my next question. Iterate. Because one thing you've been really great at and your, and your co-founder is listening to what's out there and coming back to it and adapting to it. It's not just set and forget or put up the website, walk away. Clearly, you're interacting with an audience, whether it's an uh, archetypal audience in your mind or actual people who are giving you feedback. And that is super valuable. That must yes. be something that came from advertising because you have to do that in advertising, right? Yeah. And also, you know, with the projects I talk about outside of work, they are totally unpaid. And so mm. if you're going to spend that time, you know, we're all have so limited by the time we have on this planet that we really want to make an impact. So if you're not driving that, you know, we say in advertising return on investment, the ROI, then you should really shake it up. So maybe it isn't important to you to have that ROI. So then it's fine to keep it small. But if you're really trying to drive impact, then you should really kind of start shifting, be like, okay, how can I improve on that? How can I make that better? Uh, what can I do here to really serve the community, serve my time better? So is there anything that I forgot to ask that we should have covered? The very last thing I would like to leave everybody with is it may be uncomfortable. It may be scary. Do it little by little and just start getting more used to it. And I, and I promise that it will get more and more natural as you go on. Bernice Chow, you're definitely shaking things up with your book, your TEDx curation, and your organization. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you, Lee, for having me. This is such a wonderful conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Future X podcast. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, or anywhere fine podcasts appear in your feed. Post a comment on Apple Podcasts, and we'll read it on the show. For more info about FutureX, visit futurex.studio.